So God, help us today to see afresh your word that has been ancient since before we were born. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 16. Let's go ahead and, oops, that's Romans. That's not Matthew. Let's go to the right book of the Bible here. Uh, I wanted to open with actually reading the, ch the, the verses. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 12, so the first two paragraphs in most Bibles. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, in the sky, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left, uh, left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so I grew up watching a lot of TV. And that's not a fault of my parents. I'm not saying that in a bad way. But one of my favorite types of shows to watch were those crew, those, I can't even say it, those true crime shows where they're like solving the mystery. And I really hated the ones where they didn't solve the, minute, the mystery at the end. Uh, you'd watch Cold Case Files and then they're like, and this case is still open. And I'm like, man, why did I waste my time on this? I, I just wanted to see how it ends. Um, but, uh, but, but I loved watching them. And I remember this one where this, like, the opening was all dramatic, right? It has this guy sitting in a cubicle. He's typing away on his computer, and then he falls over dead. Just, just no, no real sign, no real symptoms. He just falls over dead, and it slowly pans out. And you see the other people in the cubicles panicking as if they somehow knew there was someone on the other. The acting's terrible in those shows. That's not why you watch them. But, but the, the, the story... Uh, the plot thickened because a detective that was investigating the case that was about to be ruled natural causes realizes that the wife of this guy took out a pretty sizable life insurance plan like about the same time that this guy started actually getting a little sick. Uh, he got dizzy when he was going about. He, he wasn't able to concentrate anymore and he started getting like colds. Just his immune system didn't seem to be working so bad or so well and then he just dies. So the detective try, starts investigating it and, uh, and finds out that, that the wife had been lovingly making this guy his morning coffee. And then she had been taking a little bit of antifreeze and putting just a drop or two 
every single day in his coffee as sweetener because antifreeze tastes apparently like sugar. I did not try this, um, although I'm pretty sure that anybody that looked at my search history for the last week about antifreeze poisoning would be... So, that's sad. That means it didn't record my, my fun little introduction. Anyway, so what, what tasted sweet to this guy in his morning coffee uh, was actually killing him. And so, so the wife was doing this, and she intended to kill him, and she was going to collect on the life insurance policy. And, and what seemed like an act of affection to this guy for his, uh, for, from his wife making his coffee, getting it ready in the morning, was really, really deceptive. Now, the, the, in the section we just read... Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And the leaven is the teaching of the Pharisees. False teaching is quite similar to antifreeze. It, it, it tastes sweet. Maybe it even evokes emotion or a feeling of worship. But it's really bringing a very slow, painful suffering, a sickness that invades slowly and corrupts a person's soul. It's, it's really hard to cure a man who's been ingesting antifreeze. Uh, I, I, again, my search history for the last week would look rather odd to anybody that was looking through it. But, but you, you have to very immediately get a form of ethanol that goes into the stomach and counteracts the effects of the antifreeze. Uh, you, you, you have to get immediate treatment or there can be permanent damage specifically to the kidneys. And the same thing is true for someone who has ingested false teaching. We're supposed to be on the lookout for things like false teaching. But unfortunately, false teaching very rarely comes with a warning label on it. So uh, let's go through our passage today. Um, I have a note to remind myself to say this. Uh, I'm going to probably shorten the Pharisees and the Sadducees to just the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were both Jewish sects at the time. Uh, they, they, they handled doctrine very differently in terms of especially uh, whether or not miracles were real. Um, but, but they banded together and, and they, were, they were trying to ruin Jesus, but there were a lot more Pharisees than there were Sadducees. So, so when I talk and I, I say the Pharisees this, the Pharisees that, I'm doing it for expediency's sake and for me not to just constantly have to repeat myself. So, um, so in, in the very first verse of Matthew 16, we see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees demand a sign from heaven. That's, that's what's, uh, the, what's important about that is a sign in heaven. You see, Jesus had come and he was doing all these miraculous things on earth. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He, he, uh, he, he'd been multiplying food. I mean, all these things were public and people could see it. But the problem was that they were on earth. They weren't up in the sky. There was no cloud that looked like a loaf of bread when Jesus was multiplying food. So therefore, maybe, maybe this could be faked. And the Pharisees, actually, the Pharisees very specifically had this erroneous, this, er this error-focused error view that, that, that only God could do things in the sky, but, but Satan could do things on earth. 
So therefore, a lot of these things that Jesus did, they, they could have been Satan. So when they ask him to uh, you know, give them a sign from heaven, they're, they're quite literally meaning something in the sky. Maybe the stars would spell out Jesus. Maybe, maybe a cloud would look, look like what he's doing. You know, may, maybe, maybe like, you know, when you take a plane and, and the plane writes something in the sky, right? Like, like, honey, I love you, or will you marry me? Like, something like that, right? Like, like show us a sign from heaven that, that, that you're doing the right thing. But then Jesus points out how ridiculous and stupid <laughs> their, their request is. And I, I love, he even uses the exact same thing when he's, this, the same thought of the sky, right? Uh, it, he, he says, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning it'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. And, uh, and, and that's apparently some sort of an adage that they used to say. And sailors actually have a similar adage from a poem, uh, red sky at night, Sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. So this is something that the Pharisees knew how to do. They knew how to look at the sky and go, it's going to be a stormy day. Or look at the sky and go, mm, you know what, it's, it's going to be a great day today. It's going to be lovely. So they know how to read the, read the sky, read the weather patterns. You and I today, we can just pop up our phone, you know, uh, I'd use the command, but I might start people's phones, but you know, like, what's the weather going to be today? And our phone will respond, you know, today it's going to be rainy. So, so Jesus points out like, hey, you know what? You can read all these signs. You know what the weather's going to be like, but you can't even figure out what's going on around you. Now, what Jesus is saying when he says you, don't know, you cannot interpret the signs of the times, what he's saying is that this is, this is the messianic age. Jesus coming. He's, he's the Messiah. The Pharisees are supposed to know who the Messiah is. They're supposed to know that this, this, this Jesus, this, this, this Savior, this Christ, this anointed one, who's coming through Israel and for the benefit of the world, they're supposed to know what he's going to do. But instead, they're being little, little turds. They're being little jerks. They're, they're coming up against Jesus. They're, they're arguing with him at every step of the way. They're just, just nagging at him, and eventually they end up killing him, which they probably saw as a success. So Jesus says, you can't figure out what's happening around you. And then he gives them the rebuke. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Uh, it's, it's biblically true if you were to open Proverbs every time you read about the harlot or the whore or you know, the adulterous woman, right? It, it's, it's true that adulterers usually don't just do it once. Usually they're serial offenders. They make, they make a habit of it. They, they, they step outside of their marriage bed frequently. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were, were adulterous in the fact that they always wanted more. You know, it, what you're doing, Jesus, it's, it's not enough. We, we need some more proof. They, they coveted. They coveted for more from Jesus. 
And in that way, they were kind of like Israel and Judah, um, constantly committing spiritual adultery, constantly finding new ways to be unfaithful. Like, for instance, in Jeremiah 3.6, when, when the Lord says to, uh, to Jeremiah, have you seen what she did, the faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. The Pharisees were doing that. So when he says an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, what he, to paraphrase it, he's saying, listen, you won't be satisfied no matter what I do. Because you are adulterous. And you just keep, keep wanting, keep inventing new ways to be unfaithful. Those who are spiritually adulterous are never satisfied with God, but always crave some new pleasure, uh, pleasure of knowledge or experience. And in this case, show us something in the sky. And then Jesus drops the mic and he leaves. That's the end of verse four. So he left them and departed. I love that. I love that about Jesus. He's, he says what needs to be said and then he's like, see ya. So he leaves, and what that means is he's actually leaving this Jewish region. He, he had just come back, just started doing ministry to the Jews. And, and before he can even take a breath, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come in to test him. Just jumping back to verse 1, when it says to test him, what it means is, is, is to tempt or to put on trial. That's what they're doing. So, they, so Jesus leaves, and they go back to the Gentile region, and, and when they get to the other side, the disciples go, go oh, uh, man, we forgot to bring bread. We're going to get hungry. You know, hey, did you bring any trail mix? No? Oh, shoot. Judas, you've got the money pouch. Did you, did you spend it on any food? No? Oh, man. So they start freaking out, and they become preoccupied with with the fact that they're, they're not going to have enough food to eat soon. And Jesus then tells them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, leavening, by the way, I had to look this up because I asked my wife, I was like, what's it, what's it called when yeast reacts? What's the chemical reaction call? Uh, called and uh, and she's like, oh, it's called the bloom. But that actually describes what it looks like uh, when when yeast starts to react in dough. It blooms. It kind of turns into kind of a flower. But that's not what the chemical reaction is called. Uh, the chemical reaction is actually fermentation. Leavening, which is usually yeast or baking soda, uh, creates a process of fermentation where sugar is digested. It produces energy and then gives off carbon dioxide, which allows the dough to rise. This is all news to me. I am not a baker. In fact, if I ever bake you anything that's not like banana bread, just say thank you and put it in the garbage. But, but when, uh, thanks, huh? thanks, Abby, I appreciate that. My own daughter, so loving. Um, so, so, so Jesus is telling them to watch out for the leavening of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because it, it consumes something. Because, because it spreads itself out through something. And in, the, in this case, it's, it's faith and, and, and doctrine, teaching, true teaching. And the disciples totally understand it. No, they don't. 
Like, like normal people, they completely miss the point. They are totally preoccupied with the fact that they're going to be running out of food. And, and so they, they start looking around at each other, right? Um, they, they, they think Jesus is talking about physical bread, you know. Hey, did somebody buy a loaf of bread from the Pharisees? Is it, is it poisoned? Have you, have you tried it yet? You know, ah, give it to Judas. Nobody likes him. But, but, uh, but you know, like, like, who bought bread? Did somebody buy bread? And they, you know, maybe, maybe they thought someone was holding out on them. You know, like we're out of, we're out of bread. Come on, share the wealth. Maybe they think it's poisoned. But, but it's not explained what they thought. It's just explained that they totally missed the point. And how like men is that? Just throwing that out there when somebody it's it's like when my wife says you know it'd be really great if you know insert gift here at this time and I'm like yeah that would be great it's totally over my head I just you know but how like is it for for us people and especially men to miss the point of something that was you know maybe not perfectly clear just like Carl this morning you know a cubit is a hand something in a foot or something like that. And he tells me this phrase and I don't even hear it. And I'm like, a hand again, what a, what a, anyway, uh, just completely missed the point. It took me 10 minutes of him talking to me to figure out what he was saying. Anyway, so the disciples missed the point, And so Jesus rebukes them. He, uh, he, he uh, uh, calls them, oh, you of little faith, which which is actually not a rebuke in the Greek. Uh, he, he's actually saying, you little faithers. Um, he's giving them the title of this. Uh, I, I, it's what Jesus uses all the time. Um, I, I think it's pistotikos, but I'm not really sure. But, but it's, it means small faithers. Um, so I, always, I thought that was funny when I realized that that's not a description. That's like a nickname. Like, how would you like that as a nickname? You know, you little faither. That's, that's not something you take lightly. But he says, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Don't you get it? Aren't you tracking with me yet? And then, and then he reminds them of these miraculous feedings to prove that, that their preoccupation with food is ultimately unimportant. Listen, Jesus could provide bread from a rock if he needed to. When Satan tries to tempt him back in Matthew 4 of that very thing, Satan's tempting him because he's able to do it. Jesus could pick up a rock and go bread and poof, bakery fresh cinnamon roll right there in his hand. He's able to do it. And he can multiply food out of out of these small things, and he can speak things into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing. The disciples should, learn, should have learned by now that Jesus is constantly providing for them. They should have figured out that he's not talking about bread. He's talking about something deeper, something more important. So, so, so then the disciples finally get the point. And that's the very last verse. Then they understood that he, did not, that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The point that Jesus was making 
is to avoid the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? It's because the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is like leavening. It might look good, might even taste good, but it consumes and it spreads, it rises and it ferments. Therefore, I'd like to spend the remainder of our time discussing false teaching and false teachers, because ultimately, ultimately, the command of Jesus, the imperative, the thing that we need to do, that we need to get from these two sections of scripture, is to remember that we need to beware, to watch out for false teaching. So, what does false teaching do? Well, false teaching usurps what is biblical. Uh, false teaching often sounds biblical. And I, I know, like, I, I've heard this, these verses uh, in reference to why you don't want to send kids to public school because they're going to be taught these, these false things and it's going to corrupt them and that's going to be bad. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not talking about public school education. Jesus is talking about things that look biblical but are actually usurping meaning to, to forcefully come around and take control of what God has declared as true. And false teaching really often does sound biblical, and it can even have biblical support. Something that's, that's, that's a fake doctrine, a fake teaching, can often have tons of verses underneath it. It's, but, it, but it's usually derived from a handful of verses, and it's not consistent with the rest of Scripture. This is what we, uh, we often call cherry-picking. When you go pick cherries, well, when we send a, a machine to pick cherries, it just grabs the tree, shakes the tree, gathers in a basket everything. But then something has to come sort the cherries, the good from the bad cherries. And so most, uh, well, all false teachings that are biblically derived come from cherry-picking verses, from not reading scripture in its totality, but, but just grabbing here and there the cherries that, that you like. I really like these red ones, but these yellow red ones, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm just going to push them off to the side. And false teachers do this in order to uh, ultimately fulfill the goal of usurping biblical authority. Satan is a usurper. He usurped God's, uh, well, he usurped Eve's trust of God in, the Bi in Genesis 3. He's a usurper. He usurped Adam's technical headship over Eve and, and got Eve to make the decision instead of Adam stepping up and saying, no, don't. Satan is a usurper, and the teachings of Satan try to usurp men's hearts, especially in the face of proper doctrine. Now, the Pharisees, as we, as we have read, and I was legitimately lamenting this yesterday as I was, as I was driving, driving somewhere. I was lamenting the fact that I started with the Gospel of Matthew because the Gospel of Matthew is predominantly written to the Jews. Okay, that makes sense. But it's predominantly about the evil and the wickedness of the Pharisees. So it probably feels like I'm just beating everyone over the head. You know, you Pharisees. But I, I promise I'm not trying to do that. That's just what the text is about. 
But the Pharisees often try to usurp Jesus. They come up to him and they say, well, Jesus, you say that this is true, but don't you think that this is true? Hmm? And then Jesus comes and just dodges the question. So often, we met that especially in the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll hit that in Matthew 23 when we get to Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees that lasts an entire chapter. The Pharisees keep trying to usurp Jesus. And now they're trying to usurp him by trying to make him a puppet. Show us a sky in heaven, or show us a, a sign in heaven there, Jesus. Show us who you are. They want to put God under their command, although they don't admit that he's God. See, the Pharisees did not have the patience or the humility to see themselves as usurpers. They, they just couldn't. They didn't see themselves as divisive. They didn't see themselves as in the wrong. They saw themselves as essentially gatekeepers. And because they were gatekeeping God, they were headed towards judgment while thinking themselves righteous. False teaching, when it takes root in a person's heart, causes that person to regard anybody who corrects them as less of a person, even questions the validity of his or her corrector's motives. Just like Satan did in the garden, did God actually say? And proceeds to twist what God actually said. Just to use an illustration of why, 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 why we need to beware of false teaching, why we, need to, um, why, why we need to be on the lookout for it, right? Think of a fruit salad, right? If you went to a single tree and you picked fruit from that tree, do you really have a fruit salad? No. You've picked from a single tree. You don't have a fruit salad. A hundred apple slices a fruit salad does not make. You need other stuff in it. And so therefore we should not cherry pick from one tree of the Bible, one book of the Bible even if we want to think about it like that. We instead should go to the garden that is the Bible itself and we should go throughout the whole of the garden in order to, to make our fruit salad of theology. We want to we make sure that we have everything contained, even the parts we don't like, even the raisins. I don't like raisins, but they do have a place in fruit salad, I promise. Good. So, so in order to avoid false teaching... We have, to, we have to check what we've been taught by reading more and more of the Bible, reading, reading the entire Bible. I've tried to go through the Bible every year for the past some number of years. In fact, I could do the math in my head right now, but then I'd just sit here making grumbling noises as I'm trying to think. But, but, but I, I try to go through the Bible each year because I have to keep checking my theology. And I know that, I, I know that if, I, if I were given f like free reign of just picking what I want to read, I would stick to probably five books of the Bible, and they're all short. I wouldn't read the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah. I, I wouldn't read Ezekiel. The dude lays on a bed of nails. Like, what a weirdo. Anyway, so, so, the, so you, I, I wouldn't read the minor prophets because I'm not in Israel. So what do I have to care about judgment coming? 
No, friends, we need to go to the garden. We need to go to the whole garden that is God's word, and we need to pick from every tree. And not just the cherries, but all the fruit. And the good thing about fruit is that once you pick it, it regrows. So once you've gone to every single tree in the garden and you've, you've picked from it, guess what? When you go back the next season, new fruit's going to be on it. It's from the same tree. You will never grow bored of the Bible if you read the whole thing. If you stick to a cherry-picking theology, you're going to grow bored really fast, kind of like you're bored of my sermon. But, but if, you, if you truly want to benefit your soul, read every book of the Bible. That will guard you from taking in false teaching. So the question I just answered that I forgot to say is, what does false teaching do? It usurps biblical truth. How do you prevent yourself from going into false teaching? You let the Bible usurp your truth. Now, question two, how does false teaching work? Well, false teaching has a tendency to exalt pride and self-righteousness, and it murders the humble. Now, what I don't mean is it murders your own humility. I, I mean it murders the humble. It goes after anybody who's humble, and it beats them to a pulp until they're left on the, the side of the road, bloody and massacred. False teaching cannot abide by what Paul says in Romans 12.3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. False teaching elevates the me. It takes the me and it says, man, I really am great. Man, I really am worthy. Man, I really am wonderful. Fearfully and wonderfully made, right? False teaching looks at itself and it says, yes, I am all you need. And those who have adopted false teaching jump on every weakness of the humble like a lion, an injured wildebeest. They, like, like the, their father Satan, are predators whose very natures seek someone to devour, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8. Now you might be wondering, well, hold on, wasn't he talking about false teaching? Why is he talking about false teachers now? Why, 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 is, why is he pushing into the person? Well, it's because there's nowhere in Scripture where a person is psychologically divided or divorced from their actions. Nowhere in Deuteronomy or Leviticus are you going to read, yeah, the guy that committed murder, ah, just murder his sin, right? Let the guy go live in peace. No, it's going to say, hey, the dude murdered, kill him. There's nowhere in Scripture where you're going to find uh, anyone say, don't, you know, the... I'm trying to not say a certain phrase, and it keeps almost blurting out. <laughs> so nowhere in Scripture are you going to read where, where the Bible says, um, you know, oh, okay, well, the person committed the act, but the person's not at fault. That's not biblical. And I know you can argue with me, well, Luke 23, 34 says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or Matthew or uh, Romans 7, you know, I do not do the good that I want, but I do the evil. The evil that I do not want, I do. But that's, 
that's not that's literally missing the point of both those uh, in 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 when Jesus says father forgive them for they know not what they do he's not pronouncing forgiveness on this people he's saying that hey these Romans that have kind of been ployed into killing me, they don't realize how great and heinous a thing this is. And, 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 and the, the Jews, you know, don't, don't bar them from salvation just because they want me dead. That what Jesus is saying is they don't understand the extent of what they're doing. Because no Jew who has any knowledge of the Bible is going to think, well, you know, if I get the Romans to kill a guy for me, then I'm guiltless. All they would have to do is, again, read Deuteronomy and Leviticus. It's actually a section on getting your neighbor to kill your neighbor. Anyway, so, so, so the, the point is not that the, the person is divorced from their actions psychologically. The, the, the point is, is very different. And again, again, Romans 7 is actually Paul's lament of his sinful estate that no matter he, how much he tries to kill his sin, his sin keeps coming back to life and, it, and he despises it. Paul is not psychologically saying, well, you know what? I'm distinguished from my actions. He's saying, I am my actions and I hate it. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how he ends. So a false teacher is someone who teaches false teaching, and, a fa and false teaching ultimately produces false teachers. Did that make sense? False teaching produces false teachers. A false teacher is in a very dangerous condition. Uh, in fact, if you'd really like to read some fun, fun verses, 1 Timothy 4. He's prideful and conceited. He's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing, Paul writes. He creates division and strife. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produces envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. And he expects to be rewarded by people in either status or money for his righteousness. Or as Paul puts it, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So false teaching produces false teachers. Which is why you're supposed to beware of it. Most of the Bible's epistles, which epistles just means letters, most of them are written to correct both false teaching and false teachers. I have a, a set of them here, but, but for instance, Paul with the Judaizers, which is literally every letter of Paul, those that, that are trying to Judaize Christianity, they're trying to bring circumcision in, and, and, and nowhere is he more brash about that, frankly, than the Galatians. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Why? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is taking Judaizing and he's kicking it in the stomach. Then you've got John with the Gnostics, uh, which is why you have, 
one of the most unusual and difficult to interpret passages in 1 John 1, 2, uh, 1, 1 to 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life that was made manifest. Just to summarize, the Gnostics said, oh, Jesus didn't come in body. Uh, he, he was just a ghost. He was a spirit. They had this secret knowledge that Jesus was not physical. And so John is using all these physical terms to say, no. No, Jesus came. And then you've got Peter, who also argued against the theologically illiterate. The, the, there, there were these people that were antinomians that said that the law is no longer valid. Which is why Peter then says uh, in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, um, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because again, the antinomians were saying, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Go, go, enjoy all these things. And then he also spends most of 2 Peter correcting shallow theology. To beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees means to look out for both false teaching and false teachers. There is no greater kindness you can do to someone who has erred in their doctrine than to lovingly correct them. Or as the brother of Jesus said, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James 5, 19 through 20. But notice that beginning part. A lot of people like to read this like, oh, you know, guy that goes to church, falls into alcoholism, and you go and you rescue him, you take him to AA. But what James says is, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, he's talking about doctrinal error. It is far easier to let a person alone in their wrongness than to sit down with them and guide them back to the truth. Because that, that really takes patience, takes Christian charity. It's like looking out for them. It's like, it's like if you had a friend wearing a blindfold and they're walking towards a cliff or the freeway and they're not paying attention to where they're going. Is it loving to, to just be like, ah, you know, it'd be so much effort to go over there and stop them? Is that loving? No, it's loving to get off your butt, <laughs> to run in front of them, to knock them down. I watched a, watched a video of this, this, uh, this guy who got his, his bike stuck on the train tracks, and he was trying to wrestle this, this bike out, and for whatever reason, he didn't notice the train coming at him. And it just so happened that there were two train workers that were, like, standing there, and they're shouting at him, and he's just, you know tugging at his bike, and so one of the train workers runs and jumps in front of him and just pushes him narrowly in front of this train just careening by that crushes the dude's bike and would have crushed him. That is an act of love. It is not loving to go, oh, man, this, this doctrine is so annoying. I, I'm just going to ignore it. Now, I've spent this week 
literally watching and reading and, 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 and wrestling in prayer with, with the concept of false doctrine and false teachers. Because every time I do a sermon, I try and make sure that I'm, I'm internalizing it, like I'm holding on to this truth. If I'm supposed to beware of the leaven of Pharisees and Sadducees, then, you know, frankly, where, where, where in my doctrine have I erred or am I erring or am I teaching wrongly? And so I've, I, I've, I've watched, I have actually a page of, what is this, five? Five different sources I use. Some are podcasts, some's, one's a short little video. Uh, one is a guy named Kevin DeYoung who writes these 15 discernment diagnostics. Yeah, I can't believe I remembered that. Anyway, so, but 15 uh, discernment diagnostics to look at your doctrine or somebody else's doctrine. And I have been wrestling through this because I am so tired of talking about the Pharisees, frankly. But all of us should be fearful about what we teach or know about the Bible. We should be, we should be fearful if these things we've internalized are, are true and accurate. Why? Because false teaching has a way of spreading throughout us, corrupting us, and making us think that everyone else is an idiot except for us. True teaching makes us humble. It makes us sit before God and say, I, I need to be corrected by you. And frankly, this morning in Sunday school, God used Carl twice to uh, to show me where where I I thought I knew something, but hey, you know what? I was wrong. One of them was that Noah was not in the middle of a drought. Just uh, just saying. Anyway, so <laughs> so like that we we have to make sure that we are 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 fixed on 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 God correcting us and being corrected in God's word. All of us should stand convinced that we're in need of growth and knowledge and holiness at all times. If you think you've reached a point in knowledge where you can't be taught, you are a false teacher. I looked at Carl, sorry. That wasn't intended for Carl. <laughs> but that's a characteristic that the Pharisees did not have. They didn't see a need to grow. They didn't want to have them. Instead, they demand more proof of Jesus on their terms. Show us a sign in the heavens. But the problem was that they could not interpret the signs of the times. They didn't see what Jesus was doing. They were too busy stargazing than to see the blind see, the deaf hear. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are the villains because they, in their pride and in their conceit, could not see or hear that what Jesus did was better than what they thought he would do. At another time in Jesus' ministry, Luke records that Jesus said almost the exact same words, but he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. That's Luke 12, 1 through 3. The leaven of the Pharisees is a slow-acting poison, and one day God will bring that poison to light. But plead with God for the grace and the mercy to flee false teaching, because, because frankly... Frankly, it spreads and corrupts. False teaching 
also has another characteristic that, that I think John Hoos, uh, who, have you ever heard the phrase, uh, this goose is cooked? That's, that's John Hoos. He said it. John Hoos was a guy who was martyred in the 1400s. He was, he was martyred almost 100 years before Martin Luther would post his 95 Theses, which were coming up on Reformation Day, which is November 1st, which is my favorite day of the year. Makes me want to get a hammer. Um, but, and, and, and if you know, you know. Anyway, so, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but John Hoos was this wonderful, wonderful reformer before the Reformation. He, he read the Bible, he translated it, and he realized that what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching in the Czech Republic was, was false and it was bad. And, and he, he made, he made a, a statement that, that false teaching tries to drive God's word into a corner. It tries to corner God's word. It's not willing to accept correction. It stands resolute and firm in its own stupidity. And almost a hundred years before the Reformation, John Hoos says this. He says, Oh, brave Christians, are you all dead that you allow errors to be bandied about and God's word driven into a corner? Scorn them and do not let the devil rule over you. May the Lord God herein be your helper, who alone can be and is creator. Stand under nobody but God alone and do not stand for false teaching, but, but, but rebuke it. Stand against it. Even in your own selves, when you, when you see that something you have believed for decades is wrong, then repent. Or when you see that something you've held so firmly to is maybe not as clear in scripture as you hope, then give the charity, the grace to leave wiggle room for, for something else. Do not let false teaching take hold in your heart. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's a corruptive poison. And it does not stop at one soul. Did you know that if you take two loaves of bread, one with yeast and one without, and you put them in the fridge or in a riser together, the yeast will actually start to, start to infest the other loaf? And it doesn't infest it in the same way as the other one. It doesn't just cause, cause it to rise like it did the other. It starts it to malform and rise oddly and, 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 and look not like a risen loaf, but like some, some sort of a comic book villain where, where there's a lump that's just grown over the edge. Leavening does not stop in one place. Instead, it infests everything around it and corrupts it. Oh, brave Christians, are you all dead that you allow errors to be bandied about and God's word driven into a corner? Stand firm, beware, and watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Let's pray. God, you have spoken. You have spoken, and we have finite minds where we, 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 we need to be warned to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We need to be warned about that. Why? Because we are stupid and fickle and without your Holy Spirit, unable to see and, uh, the, the light 
of truth that's in your word. God, we need your help. We need your purifying work. We need you to come, to reign in us, to show us what is in your word, to keep us from being cherry pickers, but instead let us make the whole salad from the garden of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, saints. Beware because it will corrupt men's souls. Go in peace and be brave.